So here we are tonight on the last night of a metta retreat. And um, someone said in an interview this morning, in one of the groups, I'm really, really hoping that uh, you're going to talk about forgiveness in your talk tonight. So I was really happy to be able to say, as a matter of fact, I am. And it's appropriate to talk about, it's not only always appropriate to talk about forgiveness, but it's particularly appropriate to talk about forgiveness because it's really um, a linchpin key to the very uh, heart of what we are doing. When we talk about metta or benevolence or friendliness practice that comes from um, that great balance of mind that enables us to meet each moment and each person as a friend. As Carol spoke last night so eloquently of being able to respond with the greatest depth of compassion only when we have the balance to hold suffering in our view and in our hearts without flinching from it and without aversion. And that we are able to respond most fully to other people's good fortune with absolute sympathetic joy only when our hearts are balanced in enough equanimity so that our joy for them is not tinged and tainted with envy or jealousy or pulling. So we need to talk about that great equanimity, which is really the foundation of friendliness and compassion and sympathetic joy, and the way in which forgiveness is a key piece of that great equanimity. You think about Carol's um, example of her friend who wakes up every morning and says, wow, this is the best day yet. Imagine getting up in the morning and say, wow, thanks. Another day to see the goodness of life. To do that truly with an awakened mind, you really need to have such spaciousness of mind that could hold the difficulties and the pain of life in it and still be able to say, well, you would need to have the heart to open to all that pain, not drown in it. We'd need to be able to see our own situation and the situation of other people with tremendous clarity, really to see clearly the ubiquitous nature of suffering, our own and other people, and to be able to do it with enough balance to have the power, really, to respond with bodhicitta, with the really the impulse to be of service, to address the great suffering of the world. And begin to see the possibility of uh, service as happiness and generosity as happiness. So the great forgiveness, we'll start with the great forgiveness and then we'll work down to the little personal forgiveness. The great forgiveness is to be able to forgive life for being just what it is, so painful 
for everyone, sooner or later, not in the same amounts. The truth is that some people, for whatever reason, in every life, there's all the karma, not for some reason, for reasons of karma. We all have different rows to hoe and different amounts of difficulty. But everybody has difficulty. I heard a story about um, a woman whose, whose death remark, as death remarks of Japanese uh, Zen teachers often are their final teaching. I don't know that this woman was a Zen teacher, but a Japanese woman who's become at least a sage in the tradition that I teach in because we tell her story enough, who has apparently said as her final death remark, as she died, last breath remark. Thank you very much. I have no complaints. <laughs> Imagine being able to do that. I had a friend who died about, um, oh, 20 years ago now. He was in his 40s when he died. He died of a cancer very rare in men. He had a wife, he had children, he had a very flourishing career. Uh, he did everything he could to treat his illness, every possible treatment that was available, and uh, he died. And he wrote a letter to be sent to all his friends after his death. And one of the things he said in the letter in describing his life is, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. I thought that was marvelous. And sometimes when you listen to that, you think, well, didn't Bill want other? Didn't he want to get well from his illness? He certainly did. And he did everything that he could to get better from his illness. So not wanting other doesn't mean not having aspirations. Doesn't mean non-acting. Doesn't mean not being, doesn't mean being passive in the in the uh, face of whatever is happening. It means doing whatever you can do, seeing whatever you got, and then not wanting other, because that's really the refuge of a balanced, equanimous heart. It's really a place of great wisdom. Needless to say, things are what they are for reasons far beyond our ability to figure them out. Certainly life gets lived through us. We aren't helpless in our lives. We make decisions in every moment, hopefully in moments of clarity, in a skillful way. And we make decisions that influence our life and have tremendous influence on the lives of the people around us and ultimately, I believe, on all life but we're not in charge. There's a way in which knowing that, that there's a place that we can rest in the middle of a life of difficulty with a certain balance around the difficulty. I was going to Spirit Rock to teach one day, somewhere in the last year or two, and uh, I was arriving for class in the morning 
and kind of hurrying because I was almost late. And here down the path came another person who comes to class quite often, so I, I know her by name. And I said, hi, Rose, how are you? And she said, I'm fine. And then as we were hurrying in together, she said, well, actually, you know, I have this difficulty happening and this other little problem in my life and I have this other problem with my son. But actually, she said, I'm fine. So after we had sat that morning, because I, I had a sense of what Rose meant, after we sat together, as is our habit for every week, I talked about, I met Rose outside, I told exactly the same story I just told you now. And we talked about that sense of being able to say, this is what's happening, this is what's happening, this is what's true, this is painful, this is not so painful, this is more painful, this is pleasant, and I'm fine. I'm really fine. I'm just reminded of my grandmother who used to say, my arthritis is giving me a lot of trouble. My knee hurts. I haven't had a letter from my cousin Sophie in a long time. <laughs> and I myself am not too good. <laughs> that there's a sense that I myself could be good or not good, fine or not fine, and that people got it, what she meant. When I told that story about Rose's remark, Gwen made a remark that has gone down in Spirit Rock history as Gwen's remark, because I said, you know, maybe we should have as a password here, I'm fine. So, you know, like clubs and secret societies, they have passwords that they say to each other. They give a secret hand sign or a secret handshake or secret word, password. We said, how about we'll have a password here at Spirit Rock and the password will be, I'm fine. So we all thought about that. And then Gwen made her remark, which has gone down in history. This is Gwen's remark. Gwen said, when people ask me, how are you, Gwen? I say, I couldn't be better. That is always true for all of us. Always. If we could, we would. <laughs> Nobody purposely suffers. They get up, they say, I'm feeling great, but now I'm going to mess up the day. Nobody purposely does that. <laughs> we couldn't be better, any of us. It is really that awareness that everyone is always operating at whatever level of clarity they have, sometimes not much and sometimes unskillfully and sometimes unwholesomely and sometimes in a way that creates a great deal of pain for other people. But they couldn't be better. That doesn't mean that the behavior is okay. It just means they couldn't be better. It's really the clue to being able to forgive people. This moment in which we couldn't be better, we can be different. The next moment can be different because if this moment is one of clarity, we can make a judgment that will make the next moment better. We can make a judgment in a moment of clarity 
that changes this moment completely and our reality completely from here on. In fact, that's what we're hoping to do here this week. I really think of this practice as transformative in the deepest sense and in, in, in ways often that I feel are heroic and monumental, like changing the course of the Mississippi, but we can do it because we really have that possibility in moments of profound clarity to choose differently and live differently and have a different reality. But this moment, as it arrives, is the child of everything that ever happened, always. We say, as part of the equanimity reflection, every individual is heir to their own karma. I think about that a lot, about what it means. Every individual is heir to their own karma. It has, in my mind, it has n- not, I, I don't hear it with a sense of we deserve what we got. We got what we got in a lawful way because of everything that's gone before. I was teaching in um, Grand Rapids, Michigan, sometime a year ago about, and um, at the end of the retreat workshop that I taught there, Someone said, you know, you really ought to, there's a, there's a person in our community that you haven't met yet. There's uh, Arnold Borstein. He's uh, 86 years old. You should meet him. Maybe he's um, a relative of yours. It's not that common a name. So I sought him out, and we talked a little bit. And we determined, in fact, that we were not relatives, that his family comes from northern Germany. My father-in-law's people were Ukrainians. Um, he's 86 years old. But um, I asked him, had he been born in Germany? He said, no. His father was uh, born in, had been born in Germany, had come to the United States. But he, Arnold Borstein, had been born in Grand Rapids in 1906. I said, you know, that's really interesting. All the folks that I know, they came to this country, they got off the boat, they stayed in New York. Nobody moved. <laughs> They maybe moved to New Jersey if they were adventuresome, but nobody moved to Grand Rapids. I said, how did your father get to be in Grand Rapids? He said, well, my father actually came to New York and he stayed there a while, and he and a cousin, they went into business, but the business failed, so they were thinking of something else to go into business doing together. together. And the friend said, let's go into the pickle business in Chicago. So he said, okay, let's do it. And the friend went to Chicago, and then he got on the train to join, oh, it was his cousin, actually, went to join his cousin in Chicago to open a pickle business. He had to change trains in Detroit. (laughs) In Detroit, he got on the wrong train. He got on the train to Grand Rapids. And he arrived in Grand Rapids in mid-afternoon on a Friday. And he was alone in a new city, in a new street, didn't know anybody. Walked down the main street of Grand Rapids and saw a store that said um, S. Cohen and Son Men's Haberdashers. 
And he went in and he said, listen, I'm new in town. I just got here. I don't know anybody. Do you know any family that would invite a um, single Jewish man home for Shabbat dinner? So S. Cohen took him home for dinner. In the home of S. Cohen, having arrived there a week before, was S. Cohen's niece from Europe that Arnold Wurstein's father married and lived the rest of his life with in Grand Rapids. And Arnold Wurstein was born there. So if Arnold Wurstein had got on the right train to go to Chicago, he would have had a whole different life. And not his children, and not his grandchildren, and not his story. And I think to myself, we are all of us, all the time, getting on the train for Grand Rapids. Every single thing we do, every decision we make, is another train to Grand Rapids. I told that story to my friend James, and he said, I, I think it's wonderful that that story happened in Grand Rapids. He said, because that's like what life is. It's a river that's one long Grand Rapids. <laughs> When I see clearly, in the moments that I see clearly, I recognize that for me to be here in this moment, every single thing in history has to have happened. For me to have my children or my grandchildren, every single thing, or for you to be here, or for anything to be what it is now, everything else has to have happened. And sometimes people say, well, wait a minute, what, what does your life have anything to do with Marco Polo establishing a trade route to the Orient? Or... I don't know, but I think it has something to do with it. <laughs> because, because, who knows what those trade routes to the Orient did about commerce in Europe, did about the business affairs of the people in Europe, which caused different people to make different decisions about where to live where, and how to marry, and when to emigrate, and when to do what. And there are such things as proximal karma and distal karma. And it's probably, Marco Polo is probably very distal to my personal karma. <laughs> but nevertheless, when I realize that, I really am awestruck by had I got on one plane later, or turned the corner 10 minutes before, or married Arnold Schwartz instead of Seymour Boerstein, or whatever. That's a proximal karma, but everybody's life would be different. You know, we really get that on some level, so then it's hard to realize why we don't forgive people for being what they are makes so much sense to do it if we realize that people who do hurtful things are in pain. Everybody knows. People who do a hurtful thing are in pain. Happy people don't do hurtful things. It's, it's like so sensible to think that. That why aren't we compassionate? Why don't we right away respond with great compassion? Why don't we forgive them? I sometimes hear people say things like, I'm never going to forgive so-and-so as long as I live, or... Um, I'm never going to give them the, the pleasure of the satisfaction 
of my forgiveness. As if the other person gets better from us forgiving. You know, it is actually we who stay locked in a prison of discontent, in a prison of tight heart when we don't forgive. And yet we imagine that we somehow are causing... Well, first of all, we imagine that we're causing pain on the other person by not forgiving them, and we imagine that the sense of pain that we're causing them is making us happy, but it's not true. Vengeance is sweet, is not true. Vengeance is terrible, and it's painful. It's, it takes some deeper understanding, though, because it makes sense to forgive. And yet, we remember who offended us and who hurt us. We keep a little list even though we know it's tedious. When we listen to the Metta Sutta, it's so beautiful. May all beings be happy, whatever their living nature. The Metta Sutta doesn't say how to love everybody. It says, take care of everybody, love everybody, wish everybody well. It's kind of like the, in a certain, it's very beautiful. And it's a little bit like the Nike ad. It says, just do it. It doesn't say how to do it. So I think we need another sutta called the, the No Grudge Sutta or something. That how to do it that might also shed some light on how we can work with those tightnesses in our own heart that have not yet relaxed. think that we don't forgive because we've been either frightened into a guardedness of the heart or saddened into a hardened heart. I think that's what happens. Sometimes we, people will say, well, I'm not frightened, I'm angry legitimately because I see injustice. And my anger causes me to address it. My father used to say, um, I need my anger because it keeps me active for social justice. And I would agree with him. I said, I, I would say, I think you're half right. You need it as an alarm bell to tell you something's not right. And then you need to act. But when we act, clouded with anger, we don't act well, and we don't act wisely. We need it as a mindfulness, wake up. This isn't right, I have to fix it. And then we have to act out of clarity. You know, the things that people worry about sometimes is that Forgiveness might mean excusing, or condoning, or justifying, or actually becoming friends with people who are hurtful or dangerous. And it doesn't mean any of that. It means seeing things clearly and responding to them wisely. That space of wise forgiveness comes out of clarity seeing not through a veil of anger. 
Sometimes it means seeing our own shadow. Sometimes we're afraid of seeing our own shadow. I had a uh, 10-year grudge. It was the longest grudge I had, I think. had a 10-year grudge on... Uh, well, maybe I'll t- I won't tell you the end of the story before I begin. I had a 10-year grudge. I had a letter once from someone accusing me of something that so offended me. I, I, I remember telling people twice in my life I've had a rage. I'm not a very wrathful person. I come from mild-mannered people. I have other problems, but wrath is not my main problem. <laughs> but, and I, I tell people I had two rages in my life, one other and then this one. So I got a letter that accused me of something, and I just was filled with rage. I could not, it was terrible to me that this person had accused me of this, that, and the other thing for which I felt wrongly accused. By the way, Shanti Deva in uh, chapter 6 of the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life teaches uh, that where in, in the chapter called Patience, teaches that when uh, someone challenges your good name and you feel offended and anger rises, you should reflect in the following way. Is that person right? If they're right, you should be grateful to them because they're pointing out to you something about yourself that you could improve or fix up and since our intention in life is to be as good as we can be, we should be grateful to them and think of them as teachers. And if they're wrong, what's the problem? Forget about it. I didn't do it that well. I had a grudge for 10 years. Now, it wasn't a terribly debilitating grudge because I didn't think about it every day or nurse it every day. and. I don't run into this person every single day. I live in the same county with that person, and sometimes our paths cross, but not much. But for 10 years, it was more of a story of how I couldn't let go of that grudge. I would tell my friends, I can't believe that so-and-so said this and this about me. Can you believe it? 10 years, and sometimes we'd be on the same program, even somewhere on a panel, and I'd think, uh-oh, I'm going to meet so-and-so there tonight. We're certainly always civil to each other. And, but I always couldn't see this person without thinking of what they said about me and having my grudge come up about them. And then one night, fully ten years later after the event, I was driving to an event where I knew this person was going to be. I was going to be there. And who knows why it was the enough clarity of the moment, the position of the stars, enough reflection on it, um, a moment of grace. I had really a clear moment of driving along, and I thought, well, I'm going to see so-and-so here tonight. And instead of the story coming up about how could he have said that about me, I thought to myself, he was right what he said about me. He was right. It's a piece of my shadow that I didn't want to see. 
So I came to that place and I met him and I said, I'm really glad to see you. I felt really glad to see him. And he said, I'm really glad to see you. And he looked like he was. And we finished the evening and he said, can we have lunch? And we made a lunch date. And we have become good friends, good colleagues, really study partners, spiritual friends to each other. I love him. He had a, 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 a health crisis last year. I worried so much for him. I prayed so much for him. We've become quite close. And in the course of our becoming close, there was a long time before we actually spoke about the event that had happened. <laughs> we would speak about it in veiled ways. When we left each other after a lunch, uh, I'd say, he'd say to me or I'd say to him, I'm so glad we're friends. And he'd say, yeah, it's really wonderful. I'm really glad we're friends. We, it was a code for... <laughs> and finally, after a long time, I said, I want to tell you the story of the event because we have to talk about it sometime. I said, I just would like to tell you how I felt when I read that letter and I read the letter and I felt the rage and I felt so, so inflamed that you had said that about me, so offended, hurt me so much. It was very hard for me to think about. And I told my whole story and about that all the times that I've met you over the years, the story always came up. And I said, on that night that I said to you, I'm really happy to see you. I said I had been riding to the place and on the way, in a moment of clarity, I had realized that what you said about me, you were right. And he said, no I wasn't. <laughs> he said, I wasn't seeing clearly. I was not understanding where you were at that time. I should not have said what I said in the harsh way that I said it. It was inexcusable of me to have said it in that way. I was not seeing clearly. Please forgive me. It's a quite extraordinary amount of happiness that this one friendship has brought to my life. And it's one where we see each other every month or two for lunch. It's not, you know, it's not a big piece of my life. But the healing that happened and the learning that I did from it is a very big piece of my life. It's really important that awareness of when we hurt people, it's the it's the only thing that really can be happening there. It's it's the the fruit of that moment. If you will, it's the accident of the karma of that moment. It's the, it's the only thing that really can be happening there. It's, it's the 
the fruit of that moment. If you will, it's the accident of the karma of that moment. There's a very, um, it's a very important story, and it's not a story, it's a very important piece. In the, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's an instruction to the Israelites about building cities of refuge. And it says there ought to be cities of refuge where people can go to be protected from the angry kin of people who they may have hurt, perhaps even killed, um, accidentally. And the example is given is if you were chopping down a tree in a forest with another person and your axe handle flew off and flew into this other person and killed them, certainly be an accident. But their family in a moment, uh, in, in moments of great grief and confusion, might come after you and kill you back. So a, a cities of refuge are for people to go, and it says, to go until the hearts, heated hearts of the family, of the hurt person, can cool down. I think about... When, I, when one first hears that story, you say, well, that axe handle flying off was an accident. Everything is an accident of karma, of when we were born and who brought us up and what our circumstances are and our nervous system and our systems of self-control and our ability to see clearly and our needs to take care of ourselves that it comes somehow out of our viscera. We go back to Gwen's great wisdom. I couldn't be better. No one can be better. That doesn't mean that we don't have to be careful and take action to preserve, to, keep, to take care of people who can't control themselves so they don't hurt other people. It just means that we can see it as the accident of the karma of their lives rather than something that they meant to do. Sometimes you say, well, people meant to do it. They purposely did it. They premeditated it. That was also a fault of their karma. It's also a sadness. It's also important not to let a person who does that sort of stuff do it freely. It's important to figure out how to stop those people from doing it. It's important to figure out how to do it without hating it, understanding that everything is an accident of karma. Dalai Lama says everybody wants to be happy. Sometimes it expresses itself in a tremendously tragic and unwholesome way. When the mind is clear, we see that everyone is who they are and everything is what it is because of everything that's happened in the whole of creation forever and ever since the beginning. And then we can take every step that we can to take care of everybody, but with a forgiveness in our hearts and a compassion in our hearts. A year ago, I had the great good fortune 
to be invited to Dharamsala to uh, a conference with uh, 25 other Western Dharma teachers in Dharamsala to meet with the Dalai Lama. It was a tremendous honor to get invited. It was a tremendous trip to go. And I learned, among other things, something about moments of seeing clearly in which it becomes clear that the balanced heart really recognizes that everybody is just who they are and what they are because of the circumstances and everyone is lovable. Went to Dharamsala and um, the trip, if you haven't done it, is very hard to fly from here to somewhere or at least from San Francisco. You can't go straight to Delhi. You have to fly from San Francisco to Frankfurt and Frankfurt to Delhi. And then from Delhi, we took a night train, which is a whole other experience in in, (laughs) India. Um, Carol talked a little bit last night about the difficulty of conveying in words the enormity of the Indian experience. The night train from Delhi to Patankot is 12 hours. Um, It's an extraordinary trip in very close quarters. Um, So I traveled with many of the people who were on that trip. Many of us who could met in Delhi and then traveled together to Patankot. And then there's another four hours in a taxi cab from Patankot to Dharamsala. And uh, those of you who have ridden in an Indian taxi will know that that's an extraordinary experience. Seriously, uh, seriously life-threatening. And uh, so your attention is very high the entire trip. level of uh, level of prayers happening very high so we got there okay and by the time we come there it's such an altered experience just to have made this trip and then suddenly here you are in Dharamsala which really uh, in certain ways it's certainly a very poor Indian village and uh, so it's not magical in the way of you might imagine um, a Shangri-La uh, sparkling uh, kingdom. It's not that kind of beautiful. Um, the poor Indian village. On the other hand, it's way up in the Himalayas and it's very beautiful in the mountains. And from our window in the hotel that we stayed, you look down on the roofs of uh, different monasteries and see monks walking back and forth and walking meditation. It's very inspiring to be there. And so here you are suddenly at the end of the world, in another world. And we had um, seven days to be there. And only the middle days were meetings with the Dalai Lama. We had three days where the group was going to meet just the 26 teachers who had come as a group together to put together our agenda for what we were going to talk about for the Dalai Lama when we got there. And not all of us knew each other. 
there were maybe half of that group that I hadn't met ever. There are all three traditions of Buddhism and uh, and so I, I knew some of the people there but not all of them. And so the very first morning in our hotel of our meetings together to get ready, um, my friend Jack Cornfield, who was the moderator for our meeting, we all sat in a great circle, uh, said, well, why don't we go around the room and introduce each other? And you know how often you introduce yourself, my name is so-and-so, I live such-and-such, in such-and-such a place, and this is what I teach, or who I teach. And uh, Jack didn't ask that. Jack said, why don't we go around the room and say our name, and then say, what is the greatest spiritual challenge facing us now in our lives and in our work and in our teaching? I'll go first. And so that's about the most serious question that a person could ask you ever, and personal. I mean, there's no fooling around that question. And he said, I'll go first. And he went first. And there wasn't even a question of who would go second. He said, I'll go first, and then I'll pass the microphone to so-and-so here right at my left. So you can't even decide when you're going to go. It's just starting, and you're online. It's kind of like there's a kind of sharpness that comes in the mind or a surrender that comes in the mind when you know there is no way out of this. <laughs> however, however challenging it is, I think to myself, uh-oh, I don't know these people, and maybe how do I know if my spiritual dilemma is going to be up to theirs or they're going to approve me or uh, in a certain way I'm the new kid on the block because some of them have been there before and I haven't been there before and what if this and what if that there is no room for that I'm in Dharamsala you can't get out of there that easily (laughs) and the chips are down it's one of those situations you can't decide when to go ready, set, go so there's a wonderful kind of surrender that happens because there's nothing else to do. Clearly you're going to tell the truth because there's nothing else to do but that. Okay, here goes Jack. Now, to tell you that in this circle of 26 people, Jack and myself and Sharon and 23 other people, numbers of whom I didn't know, there were people who I knew and liked a lot. And people that I knew liked a little. People that I knew... <laughs> and I was neutral about. And there were two, possibly three, two and a half people (laughs) that I didn't feel exactly on the same wavelength with. Because in the course of the time that we have been in the Dharma world together, they offended me on some time or another, and I had them on my little grudge list in my little heart. And we're all very nice to each other all the time, and, but they're not the folks that I hang out with. So here I am, you know, good, 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 ugh, good, 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 ugh. Yeah, you look around the room and you see the different faces because you feel the feeling of your heart that goes out towards the people you love and closes with the people that you don't so much love. But here comes Jack with his question, tell the biggest spiritual challenge of your life, ready, set, go, and he starts and he tells the truth and there goes the next person and they tell the truth and there goes the next person and they tell the truth. And in the meantime, I realize whenever it gets to me, I'm going to have to tell my truth 
not without worrying about what anybody thinks of it, because I can't worry about it. I can't tell anything but the truth, and here I am. There's a wonderful kind of expansive surrender that happens, really a place of equanimity, out of an unusual, wide-awake, alert, bright, relaxed equanimity. So this person went, this person went, this person went, this person went, and then here goes this person who's one of my people that I didn't have such a good feeling on. And I realized that when, as he told his story, it was as if I never met him before. I, I was not meeting his presentation with all my stories about the time that he said X or Y that I didn't like or I took offense or he said about me. I, can't, I listened without a story because when the heart really rests and the mind is really clear, you listen without a story. So he's just a person telling a story of struggle just the same way as everybody else had struggle. Because everybody's story is one of struggle. Everybody's story is the challenge of my life is that's already a struggle. People are now going to tell you what's their difficulty. And this person says, this is my difficulty, this is my difficulty, this is my difficulty. And there is so-and-so with his difficulty, and I am hearing it the same way. And he's a new person. And then there is so-and-so with his difficulty, and I'm hearing it plain. And I realize as it's happening that it's happening. And I'm so thrilled because I know that I am free. That in that relationship, that peace is erased. And with both of those people, I hung around. We actually spent a lot of friendly time together after. It turned out to be very nice people. Sorry I missed them before. Can't even remember who the half a person was. It got better. <laughs> the half must have been not so significant. I remember the two. And I remember that we hung out a lot. One of them I don't see at all now just because of matter of where we live. But the other one I see quite a lot of. We've really become quite good friends. And it happened, I think, because of the absolute surrender of the mind into a space of balance, which was necessitated by the location and necessity, and by the clarity of mind, both of the trip and the importance of paying attention. Everything had mitigated in the direction of attention and everything had mitigated in the direction of surrender. You can't be in India without surrendering to begin with and to do this whole thing and in that group. The combination was a combination that allowed me to see clearly and to absolutely forget. I actually would have a hard time remembering the story of the offense, the offense, if I had to think it up. When the mind is clear, it's really so expansive. Everyone is just who they are. As a matter of fact, we begin to appreciate everybody for being just who they are. It's amazing how everybody is so completely who they are. It's awesome, you know, that, that you're you, not me. You know. I look at different people being different lives, and I think, Look how life is moving through that person. That's so amazing. 
It's amazing that it comes through each of us so differently. So we have that possibility of really respecting those karmic differences in all of us that make us all so uniquely ourselves with our own name and our own story and our own way of being. And at the same time, when the mind is clear, we see how pervasive suffering is, no matter how unique our story is, that suffering is really pervasive. It's a story of experience. When we see out of a place of equanimity and clarity how pervasive suffering is, it mandates out of us really a vow to impeccability. When we see the pervasiveness of suffering, I think it, I think it, it's such a call to saying, whenever I see the truth of suffering in myself, in anywhere, all around me, we must not add one more drop of pain to an already very painful experience for all of us. It makes me understand better the Bodhisattva vow about although suffering is endless, I vow to end it. I have a friend who's a Dominican nun, a member of the Dominican Sisters of San Rafael has been my friend for 25 years, one of my spiritual buddies. She taught me a prayer once that speaks to me a lot about being able to use the insight, to balance the insight of suffering with clarity about the extraordinary, um, incomprehensibly, profoundly awesome truth of karma. And the prayer is, may I be filled with that sense of awe that opens my capacity for loving. So I thought that tonight, since we are ending this uh, metta retreat, that we would sit for a little bit and that I would read you the metta sutta. So let's sit. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, 
unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on 2-1298. It is an offering.